As we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Philippians. You have few Bibles in front of you there. If you have your copy of God's Word and you're sort of thinking to yourself, where again is the book of Philippians? I remind you, Galatians and Ephesians and then Philippians there. As I was taught as a teenager, General Electric Power Company right there. So if that helps you, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 19 through 30. As we continue in a series that we started earlier in the fall, we'll continue through our time together this fall each and every Sunday through the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Who do you really admire? Who do you really look up to? For a lot of you, that's a dad, that's a mom, that's a coach, that's a player. When I was a second grader, the local newspaper called my mom, and there was a journalist on the phone that wanted to know Uh, different uh, samplings of second graders in the Jackson, Mississippi metro area, who their heroes were. The first person that came to my mind was my second grade teacher, Miss Staten. I remember sort of sheepishly reading next uh, morning uh, the the profile of different uh, second graders across the area. And and they had said, you know, this famous baseball player, and they had said, you know, a mom or a dad. But the first person that came to my mind was was this wonderfully kind second grade teacher that I happened to be in her class. And I'm sure I'd just come from her class when when the reporter asked that through my mom. And and teachers have been this just tremendous influence upon my life coaches, teachers, professors. We all have people that we adore and that we look up to and that we admire. We all have those kinds of people in our life. And it tells us, no, it doesn't tell us everything, but it, it, would, have, it would have told you something about me as a second grader to, to see who, I, who came to my mind first uh, that, that would be my second grade teacher. It tells you something. If, if somebody asks you, who do you look up to, and, and you say a supervisor, and they say, well, why that supervisor? Why that boss? And, and you give a narrative of the last 18 months. You've seen the difficulty at work, the stress that has come, and you've seen this person, he or she, up close, and they're a person of integrity. They're a person of humility. And they've led in a way that, that is worthy of emulation. That, that's going to tell me, it's going to tell me a lot about your boss, your supervisor. It'll tell me a lot about her or him. But ultimately, it tells me a lot about you. It tells me a lot about what you value. It tells me a lot about what you care about, who we emulate, who we look up to. The Apostle Paul is writing 2,000 years ago, and he gives us in verses 19 through 30 two examples of people that we should look up to. And he gives us the reason of why we should look up to these two men. And the reasons why we should look up to them give us a little bit of an indication of of who we're called to be and what our priorities should be as followers of Jesus. Uh, Listen to Paul's words to the church at Philippi. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all... They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and it has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. 
But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him and the Lord with all joy. And honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. If I was to ask you to group the most significant sections of the book of Philippians and to rate them 1 to 10 or 1 to 15, however many sections that we would number off, I would imagine that very few of us would come back with chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, as, as the top five of the most familiar or significant passage, passages in the book of Philippians. Now, some of that is because we have just climbed to the mountaintop of the book of Philippians, at the highest peak in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, what scholars call the kenosis hymn that reminded us that Jesus, although he was uh, with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he came to this earth. And he came not only to this earth, but he came to this earth as a servant. And he came not only to this earth as a servant, but he died a slave's death on a cruel, coarse Roman cross. That's not the end of the story, though. You remember that downward descent of Philippians chapter 2 that comes to the very bottom, the bottom of the grave, but ultimately God the Father sees his son there in the grave and it exalts him, resurrects him, and he uh, is ascended now to the right-hand throne of the Father. So where he was from eternity past, now he is there for the eternity to come. And he stands there at the right-hand throne of the Father and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Now, in light of that passage, we have come now to the weeds of of two people's travel itineraries. What what truth is relevant for us with Paul saying, I'm I'm sending to you Timothy, and I'm sending to you Epaphroditus, and these are the two guys that I want you to know a little bit about. I think there's a lot to hear and a lot to learn from as we listen closely to why Paul commends these two men to the church at Philippi. Notice that Paul shows us his priorities. He he shows us in in, in telling us why these are two men worthy of adoration, that there is a priority of proven character about these two. A a priority of proven character. Look again with me in verse 19 of chapter 2. Here's Paul, I remind you, in a Roman prison. He can't go to the church at Philippi, so what is he going to do? He is still He is still concerned about their future. He is still concerned about the unity of this church. And so he has got to have pastoral eyes and pastoral ears on the ground. He wants to hear how this church is doing. He can't go. He's in prison. So he's sending who? He's sending Timothy. Now, who is Timothy? Well, he's a co-worker of the gospel with Paul. We got that from chapter 1, verse 1. But he's more than that. You see here in verse 22, he is a son in the ministry. What Paul is saying is something that you know. In in Paul's day, somebody learned a trade. And how did they learn that trade? By going to a four-year school? No. How did they learn that trade? By going to a a two-year trade school? No. They learned that trade oftentimes by by being at the right-hand side of their father. And the trade of their father got uh, passed on to the son in that apprenticeship. That's frankly how how thousands of years uh, people made a living with their hands and learning. And so we're familiar with that. You know what Paul's talking about. Paul is saying, I am sending you my best. I am sending you Timothy, my son in the ministry who has been by my side, who has learned from me, who loves you. And we ask, 
Why Timothy and not somebody else? Well, Paul, he gives us this little discursion here to the side right there. He, he gets a little distracted and he says, now I could send you some other ministers, verse 21. But I'm going to tell you, if I send you those, they seek their own interest, not the interest of Jesus Christ. So undoubtedly, Paul has come into a whole set of ministers of the gospel there in Rome who are all about I, all about me, all about mine, my kingdom, my ministry. They're not seeking the interest of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm not going to send you any of those guys. I'm going to send you Timothy. And you say, well, again, Paul, why is Timothy qualified for this? Well, verse 20, he is genuinely concerned for their welfare. He, he loves the church at Philippi, Timothy does. This isn't just a job to him. This isn't just a, a, a you know, little vacation for Timothy. No, there's this affection and compassion and love, and he knows the people there. Verse 22, why is Timothy going? His faithfulness to the mission. So here we have the two reasons Paul is sending his son in the ministry. He loves them, and he is faithful to the mission. There's a lot to be reminded of when we hear this. Because some of the truth of God's word is not just in the words that are there, but the, the words that Paul didn't pen under the inspiration of the Spirit. We might think that, that Paul is going to say, I'm going to send you my best. And you know why he's my best? Because look at his educational pedigree. He's my best, but it doesn't say that. You might think that Paul might say, I'm going to send you Timothy. He's the best. And you know why he's the best? Because this guy, can, he can preach the ceiling down. He has got these oratorical gifts, and you've never heard somebody like that. That's not what he said. None of that. What Paul says in this moment is, is the reason that I'm sending him is because he loves you, and he is faithful to the mission. A couple weeks ago, our ministerial staff here at Dawson had the ability for about 24 hours to just get away. Haven't done that, haven't had that kind of retreat setting and obviously the last 18 months. And it, it was a time where we laughed together. It was a time that we ate together. It was a time that we worshiped together. But here I am as your pastor being able to look into the eyes of these men and women that I have the absolute privilege to serve alongside of. And I can look at them and I can say without any hesitation that these are men and women called by God who love this church and are faithful to his mission. And I don't have to have my, my fingers behind my back crossing my fingers. I know as I look at these men and as I look at these women, I have the great joy of, of laboring alongside of them, of their love for each and every one of you as they intersect your life and they intersect your family or you individually. And these are women and men called by God who love him. And it is a great joy to serve alongside of them. And this is what Paul has. He has this kind of affection and joy as he says, I'm going to send you Timothy, and I'm sending you my best. I'm going to send you my best. It's character that counts. It's love that counts. Sometimes we, we take standards of the world, and we, we place them as metrics of success in the ministry. And instead of talking about the importance of calling, talking about the importance of competency, no doubt, Sometimes we, we never get around to emphasizing what really matters, and that's character. I, I think there's a unique temptation to the Christian church right now where we exalt charisma and we exalt the ability to draw crowds to the neglect of what goes unseen oftentimes, and that is the formation of deep character 
Oh, how we need, not just in the church, but we need in, in, in the public sphere, we need men and women who understand that if the foundation of their life is not sure, if the foundation of their life is not steady, if the foundation of their life is not set with deep roots in Christ and in his word, eventually those cracks in the foundation will become cracks in the house, and the cracks in the house will be detrimental not only to the people of God, but to families and to children. We understand that. It's the little things that really matter over time. And Paul is calling us back to to think of the importance of character, to think importance of what goes unseen oftentimes, those, those deep commitments to the Word of God and to prayer that builds our lives on the foundation that is unshakable because it is it is rooted in Him. And the storms will come and the challenges will come, but you have deep roots in the unshakable nature of of our God. This is what Paul is calling us to as he says, I'm sending you Timothy. He's a person of proven character. But also notice that that he gives a priority here to humble dependency. It's really easy to miss this because there's a phrase here that sounds like just sort of like a spiritual one-off just uh, jargon here that, that is just thrown in there and it doesn't really mean anything. We can read, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And it sounds like preacher talk. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you. Sounds like he's going to send Timothy. And you might say, well, Paul, are you just kind of baptizing your plans with this spiritual jargon here? Why not just say, I'm going to send Timothy? Why do you have to say, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you? I didn't grow up in a household, nor did I grow up in a church that, that would say this phrase. Some of you might be familiar with it. Lord willing, I'm going to do. Lord willing, I'm going to do. Lord willing, I'm going to do. I never heard that until I was a 24-year-old pastor in my first church. And one of the most faithful men of God was Mr. Rip Collins. Katrina blew through. We had hundreds of volunteers that were coming to help our church and to help our community. And I, as, as the pastor, was the secretary. And I, I, was the, I was the youth pastor. And I was a janitor. And I was a youth pastor. I mean, it, we, we had one person. That was me. And I needed a whole lot of help. And Mr. Rip was there every day. Every day. And we would oftentimes at the end of the day say, well, this group is coming tomorrow and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And Mr. Rip would look at me and he'd say, preacher, Lord willing, I'll see you in the morning. Preacher, Lord willing, I'll see you in the morning. And at first, I'm going to be honest with you, I I didn't know exactly why he would say that. I kind of thought to myself, well, is that just sort of like a, a verbal saying that he just always goes back to? But the more I got to know and the more I realized that was just the posture of his heart. There was a humble dependency upon the Lord that if the Lord decided to interrupt his plans, he was not going to see me at 7 o'clock in the next morning when that volunteer group was coming in there. That, that was who he was. Now, some of us, some of us need to be reminded that it is ultimately the Lord who is sovereign over our plans. If every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and the eternity to come, I'm here to remind you that he is Lord of of our time today. And sometimes the hardest thing to give over to the Lord are our calendar plans, our agendas. When Mr. Ripp would say, Lord willing, I'm going to do 
It was a recognition of what, of what the book of Proverbs talks about. You see it here on the screen. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes steps. Proverbs 27, do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring. Or Hebrews 6, Paul didn't, I don't think, knew of the book of Hebrews. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But this passage is sort of a kissing cousin to what Paul was writing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. This we will do if God permits. Lord willing, I'm going to do this. It's a posture of life that is the opposite of that, that poem from, from, when, uh, uh, from years ago from William Ernest Henley. Do you remember that poem that said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It is the opposite. That is the opposite spirit of what Paul is calling for. This is the opposite spirit of what the, the writer of Proverbs is talking about here. That's the opposite spirit of the writer of Hebrews here. We, we are not the master of our fate. We are not the captain of our soul, but we answer in submission to who that is, a God who orchestrates our details. Now, is it important for us to plan? Yes. Should we be haphazard? No. Should, should we have agendas? Yes. But I'm here to ask you the question, are you open to his holy interruptions? Are you open to, to God's veto power over your Monday mornings and Tuesday afternoons? Do you understand that some of the greatest ministry opportunities that you will have in your neighborhood, some of the greatest opportunities you will have for ministry in your workplace are those things that you will not calendar in your uh, iPhone or in a day timer? But the holy interruptions of the Lord where God shows you a need and you in that moment see, you know, this might derail me for the next five minutes or next 15 minutes. This isn't exactly where I thought I needed to be, but I can feel the Spirit of God as I walk with Him leading me to this. Lord willing, I'll see you here. But the Lord, He has a way of interrupting our best laid plans. And are you open to His holy interruptions, I ask? Uh, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, he prioritizes a proving character. He prioritizes a humble dependency. But finally here, he prioritizes a costly sacrifice. It is easy for us to spend a whole lot of time with Timothy and forget this guy Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, I, now I, I, I'm on a mission. Can I just tell you? I've never had a family dedication where I've dedicated a child whose name was Epaphroditus. And can we make that happen? Can, can, can some courageous family just go ahead and find that Epaphroditus is a name, no matter what school your child goes to, I'm, assured, I'm going to assure you that there will not be three Epaphrodituses in his first grade class here. So I tried to get Danielle to name our youngest son, Jonathan. Jonathan's a beautiful name. It's a biblical name. But I said, Danielle, how great it would it be for us to name him Epaphroditus Eldridge. Epaphroditus Eldridge. <laughs> we could call him Pappy, but uh, needless to say... Uh, there is a veto power in our household, and that, uh, that is my wife. No, I'm kidding here. But uh, back to the passage right here at hand here. I'm easily distracted when it comes to a name like Epaphroditus. That is a good, full name right there. So we'll call him Pappy here. So Pappy, Epaphroditus, he has the highest praise saved for him from the Apostle Paul. Notice these mixing of metaphors that Paul gives. Uh, Epaphroditus is Paul's brother in Christ. It is his fellow co-worker in Christ, and he is a fellow soldier. He, he's bringing all the metaphors because he loves Epaphroditus here. You know where Epaphroditus has been? He's been right beside the Apostle Paul. 
it's easy to miss how this happened here. But Epaphroditus was sent by the church at Philippi to care for Paul in prison in Rome. And so what Epaphroditus is doing is caring for Paul. And Paul says, I'm going to send him back to you. Now, it's, it is sort of a temptation for us to read Paul's prison uh, life as, as something that would have been akin to, to what somebody would experience in, in America going to prison, where you, know, you sort of have these chains and you're walking into or, or don't have chains and you're, you're walking into a dining hall for breakfast or for lunch or for dinner and there's provided there. That, that's not how prison existed for the Apostle Paul in that Greco-Roman world. He was wholly dependent to be cared for, to be fed, not upon the Roman government, but upon the goodwill of family and friends. So the church at Philippi realizes the Apostle Paul is in prison, so they take up a love offering of, of, of sorts, and, and they have to get someone to go deliver that to, to care for the Apostle Paul. And so Epaphroditus raises his hand, and he goes, well, that was a very risky thing to do. There are bandits between the, the journey there, and obviously sickness was rampant there. The safest thing that Epaphroditus could do in that moment where they were trying to garner the support for someone to go help the Apostle Paul, the safest thing for, Paul, uh, for Epaphroditus to do was to just pretend in that moment he didn't hear what was going on. Well, Paul says, you sent him and I love him and you know that he was sick. He wasn't just sick, he almost died. And I thank my God that God healed him. And I am so excited that I get to send him back because I know you want to hug him. I know you want to see him. I know you've been praying for his healing. It, it, you know, Paul helps us to understand how precious life is here. Yes, Paul will say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, Paul will say um, to live as Christ, to die as gain in Philippians chapter 1. But also, Paul says here in this passage here that he... He did not want Epaphroditus to die. It would have led him, verse 27, to have sorrow upon sorrow. It's a reminder to us that we, sh we should not be callous about death. We, we should not try to romanticize death. Death is an enemy to us that has been defeated. But blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, death is, is never the original intent of the Garden of Eden. It, it is always a, an entrance from, from uh, the enemy himself. And so we shouldn't tread lightly with life and death. Every day that we have on this earth is a precious gift. And Paul knows that. Epaphroditus knows that. And he's saying, I want to send this brother back to you because you love him. And I love him. And I'm so thankful that he is still with us. That's a reminder to us. When Epaphroditus left Philippi to come to Rome, it, it was a costly sacrifice for him to follow the obedient path that God had called for him to do. And it is a reminder to us, for every one of us that are followers of Jesus, we will have to ask the question, are we willing to pay the price to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Obedience cost. There is a costly sacrifice for each and every one of us who take up our cross and follow him. For, for Epaphroditus, it was his, 
health, and it was uh, getting sick, and it was the uncertainty of that journey. And he said, you know, it's worth it because God has called me to do this. Just recently, I was with a a family that uh, we as a church have the privilege to support. I'll be intentionally vague about the details, but we as a church are able to come alongside of this family. And and he was telling me, this father was, of, of how their last months had been in uncertainty as they're living in a country that is not friendly to Christian missionaries. And the names of missionaries had had been received by some of the authorities, and the authorities were coming by, and uh, one by one for these families, they were raiding their homes, and they were taking, uh, most often in these settings, the husband into the interrogated, and then they deported all the families. And so for months, this husband and father with their children are living in the uncertainty of their future, but the, the calling of God to, to be witnesses and to be lighted, to be missionaries for the gospel was so powerful and so potent for them that they stay there and they stay there. And one by one, the other families are, are, are being raided and being deported. And, and this husband tells me how each morning he goes out into the balcony and he looks out and he looks out to see if the authorities have come to bang on his door. And he could get to a certain time of the morning where he knew that if they hadn't I banged on his door and and come in to raid him that they could go about their day. Could you imagine months of living in that type of stress? But the call of the gospel was so powerful. They knew that's exactly where they needed to be. And one day, the authorities came. They raided the apartment. His children saw him being taken in to be interrogated for hours That family has been deported from that country, and as I'm listening to him talk, he tells me this. We are praying for opportunities to go back to minister to those people. Now, of course, they're not going back to the same place and the same details, of course, but their passion for the call of the gospel is so potent that no matter the risk, no matter the cost, they want to be where God has called them because they understand the safest place to be is to be in the center of God's will. And the most dangerous place that you can be is a place of convenience. The most dangerous place that you can be is out of the will of God when he is calling you because the calling of God will always cost us. It is always risky. Now, it very well may be that there's one or two or many families here that are, that are praying about that calling to the international mission field, or you're praying about that calling to being in a place where the gospel is not known, and it very well may be that you're, you're counting that cost. But some of you here, that, that next step of obedience is an obedience to fostering or an obedience to adoption, and you're, you're counting the cost of that, and you're recognizing the, the sacrifice, and there's a part of you that says, I don't know if I can take this step. Because there's so much uncertainty here. And I'm here to just remind you that the path of obedience is always worth it, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the cost. There's some of you here that have aging parents and you're trying to navigate exactly how this is going to look for, for our life and our plans and, and maybe our retirement and what is this going to mean for where we're going to live and what is this going to mean for where he or she, my mom or dad, or they're going to live. And you're having to make some difficult decisions and the path of obedience, the path to honor father and mother is going to be a costly sacrifice, but it's worth it. The safest place to be is in to be in the center of God's will. The most dangerous place you can be is out of his will, disobedient to where he's calling. There are teenagers here that are in this room, and, and, and they feel the pressures. They feel the pressures of the world. They feel the pressures of fitting in. But they also, they want to shine for Christ. They want to be obedient to, 
to, to the path that he has called them to, but they, they realize that that comes, as they follow him, it comes with a price. It comes with a sacrifice. And I just remind you, senior in high school, I remind you here, sophomore, I remind you as a middle schooler, obedience is always worth it, no matter the cost. And whether it's that missionary family or whether it's that family that gets up every morning and takes their kids to school right here in a five-mile radius or 10-mile radius or 30-mile radius, we are all called to a path of obedience. And the applause that we hear that are most important are not the applause of men and women this side of heaven, but it's the applause that will come when we meet our Heavenly Father and He looks at us and He says, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. And Paul says, I'm going to tell you a little bit about two people you should look up to. One's named Timothy, one's named Epaphroditus. And these were people of proven character, of humble dependency, that lived lives of costly sacrifice. And if we will be men and women who are worthy of the gospel, we are to be men and women who follow in their footsteps. May it be so for each and every one of us. Let us pray.